Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Alexander DeSanctis, who was one of the two co-authors of the 2020 book, 2022 book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Thank you for joining us today, Zan. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very delighted because your book was powerful and it covers so much. It's, as I said in the introduction, I tried to give an indication. It's a comprehensive look. And the, the timing couldn't have been better because it came out just as the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was decided overturning Roe. And I read that in, in the wake of that decision, read the book in the wake of that decision. And it's amazing how prescient you are about giving a, giving a, the breeder a heads up on all of the obstruction that would follow immediately thereafter. And I wonder, uh, I'd like to read one passage from one passage from the book and get your reaction to it. You write of abortion that, quote, it allows employers and society as a whole to treat the male body as the norm and female fertility as a problem to be solved rather than a reality to structure social relations around. And in that respect, were you surprised by how quickly corporations announced they would pay for abortion-related travel expenses for their employees? I just did a quick Google search the other day, and it was Amazon, Bank of America, Citigroup, Comcast, Goldman Sachs, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Kroger, The New York Times, and so forth. Were you surprised at how quickly corporations said, well, this is a business expense? Or they didn't say that, but clearly they were. that was what was going on, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I, I wasn't surprised at all. And I, I appreciate you describing the book as as prescient. Um, it's interesting to me to hear that because, you know, certainly Ryan and I didn't know for sure which way the decision was going to go, although we we certainly hoped the book would come out in a post-Roe America. But um, both of us have, have spent a lot of time watching, you know, being part of the pro-life movement, watching the abortion debate unfold. And what we were trying to do is just chronicle the facts on the ground, you know, the situation as we see it and, and share with readers, um, you know, not only our perspective, but resources, information they can use to really understand this debate and be able to speak about the issue fluently. Um, and so the fact that it ended up being prescient just, I guess, kind of confirms for me we were uh, following along correctly, right? Our read on the situation was was correct. Um, and so in the case of corporations, which you raise, I think it's not surprising at all. You know, as we point out in the book, um, even before Roe was overturned, you already had companies uh, threatening to pull out of states that had pro-life laws or were attempting to pass pro-life laws. I think we give the example of Georgia in 2019 uh, passed a heartbeat bill. And of course, it, it didn't take effect at the time because of Roe. But you had major film companies threatening to cease doing their mm-hmm. business in the state, despite the major uh, incentivization programs the state has to encourage their business uh, because of abortion. And uh, though most companies don't come out and say this, the, the reason kind of underlying that is in part, I think, virtue signaling on behalf of, of the pro-abortion cause. But I think in large part, it's just this idea that women who are who become mothers, pregnant women and, and women who then you know go on to give birth and raise their children are less accessible to the workplace, right? The ideal worker for our, our major corporations today is a male worker, someone mm-hmm. who is available all the time, who doesn't leave or doesn't experience uh you know, the the kind of side effects of pregnancy doesn't ever leave the workforce, ideally. Um, and that's just not 
how the female body is made, right? And in order to participate in that kind of marketplace, women are asked to essentially sterilize themselves, to pretend like mm. pregnancy, childbearing is some kind of problem that needs to be solved. And abortion is a key part of that, right? If a child does happen to come along, if women want to continue getting ahead and be on par with men, they have to kill that child. And it's just one of many ways in which I think abortion actually disadvantages women quite a bit. Yeah, I think one of the things that was so shocking in your book is that you made the, there was a stunning passage where you say it's not so much that they want to end the pregnancy as they want to obliterate the fact that there was a child at all. And that's one of the things that I thought was fascinating was I couldn't understand why the left was so enraged by Amy Coney Barrett's comments about, well, how about if we make uh, it easier to adopt? And, I, and your book made clear they don't want there to be a baby to adopt at all. Is that is that correct or? Yeah, that's right. And it, it's interesting because we often hear, you know, there are a lot of euphemisms on the pro-abortion side, but mm. I think one of the, the main ones is this idea that abortion is terminating a pregnancy. Um, mm. But in fact, if you want to terminate a pregnancy, the way to do it is to give birth, right? That terminates pregnancy. <laughs> um, you're not actually terminating pregnancy if you're directly and intentionally killing the unborn child, you're terminating a human life. Mm. Um, and so I think the fact that, you know, if a woman doesn't want to have a child, uh, there are various reasons and various situations why it might be more or less difficult for a woman to welcome that that child into the world. But there's always the option of adoption. And, and the point you make about Amy Coney Barrett and what we mentioned in the book is when she's talking about safe haven laws and the fact that women are permitted, legally permitted to leave their babies you know, at, at these so-called safe havens and not face any legal punishment whatsoever. And you know, the baby will be taken care of by someone else. And I don't know exactly how all of that works legally speaking, but I know the woman isn't punished. And the pro-abortion side in the, the arguments in Dobbs said, this isn't good enough, right? The fact that a woman doesn't have to actually be the one raising her baby um, isn't good enough because they don't, the, the idea, the root of the, the abortion, pro-abortion mindset is that if a woman is pregnant and doesn't want her child to exist, she has a right to have it done away with just entirely. And it really is a kind of a mindset and a logic that says, uh, we want to pretend this child never existed at all. And the only way to do that, adoption doesn't accomplish that, right? Safe haven laws don't accomplish that. The only way to pretend that this child never came into the world is to kill it. And that's a, a deeply, of course, morally disgusting and, and evil worldview. Yes, I think one thing that you make clear in the book is that you talk about the left will say, well, you are force you are forcing women to have children, and that's not that's an oppressive act by a government. And you make the point that what is a government for except to protect the innocent and the and the vulnerable? And that's I wish that that could be <laughs> just broadcast on every radio in the world. It's just it was very very a very powerful point. Um, yeah. I, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, don't no, no, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you you raising that point in particular, because I think it's been one of the main responses to Roe having been overturned from the pro-abortion side. You know, women are now forced to be pregnant, forced to become mothers. But in fact, you know, 99.9 .9 of pregnancies uh, come into being, 99.9% .9 of children come into being via a consensual act that naturally leads to pregnancy, right? It's as though we're supposed to pretend we all don't know where babies come from, mm. but we do. There is a, an inherent connection between the sexual act and a human life coming into being. And so for the government or a pro-life person to come along and say, I'm sorry, this child already exists. You may not kill it simply because you wish it hadn't. Uh, that is not forcing anybody to become pregnant or forcing anyone to become a mother. It's simply requiring someone not to kill a human being who they brought into existence, right? They are responsible for the fact that that child is alive and they can't escape that responsibility by an act of violence. Well, one of the, one of the 
the the most fascinating aspects of your book in terms of of that they and, and and you don't shrink from one of the phrases you use frequently in the book is a lethal act of violence you don't you don't shrink from that you say this is a violent act it's it and that's i i i it, that that I just wish that were clearer to people. It's just it's just one of the things that you talk about the euphemism, and we're going to talk about medication abortions in just a moment. But I noticed on the Planned Parenthood website, I was researching this interview to look to learn about medication abortions, or your your preferred term is chemical abortion, and we'll talk about that as well. But they talk about the the chem the chemicals that are used specifically, and they refer to one of them. It stops the pregnancy from growing rather than the child or the baby or the infant or even the embryo or even the fetus it's the pregnancy which is which is which is a weird sort of pseudoscientific wording too is, is that common but to, to make this strange to to, to use language i mean you've said that but could you give more examples of, of such strange euphemisms yeah that, that's very common and um i think the the funny thing by the way is that of course all these same people uh would always refer to the unborn child as a baby if they're speaking with a, an expectant mother or a, a couple who wants their baby, right? They would never say, oh, congratulations on your clump of cells if their friend excitedly tells them that they're expecting. Uh, we don't look at an ultrasound picture that a friend shows us and say, oh, great fetus, right? That's a nice embryo. You have that absurd. <laughs> um, and, and we talk a bit in the book too, in the context of heartbeat bills, um, a lot of the media coverage really began to lean into these euphemisms with phrases like uh, fetal pole cardiac activity or mm. the pulsing, uh, the electrical pulsing or the electrical currents of what will later become the fetus's heart or all these different kind of unnecessarily sterile and medical ways of referring to the unborn child's developing heartbeat because they know that a heartbeat is humanizing. They know that there's something revealing about talking about the, the heartbeat of the child in the womb. But if you went to a doctor, if you went to your OBGYN for an ultrasound outside the context of abortion, if the technician said something like, there's the pulsing of what will later become the fetus's heart, you would run out of the room, right? You would find a different medical provider immediately because that would be creepy and weird and no one yeah. would do that. Um, no one has ever done that, I'm sure. And it's only in the context of abortion that we hear this kind of you know, intentionally dehumanizing language to try and sterilize who it is and what is being done to him in an abortion. Yes, in terms of 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 the language of um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, when when you talk about the youth, the euphemisms that could you talk, could you explain why you say chemical abortion rather than medical abortion? Is there a particular reason for that or? Yeah, I typically, so this is um, just for listeners who aren't familiar, the abortion pill, um, it's mifepristone and well, it's a two, two drugs that are used in conjunction to essentially um, induce a miscarriage early in pregnancy. It's usually mm -hmm. used, it's authorized, I believe up to 10 weeks, but it's sometimes prescribed up to 12 weeks of pregnancy. It's taken at home and the woman just basically induces a miscarriage and the baby's killed and then expelled from the uterus. And uh, Planned Parenthood and other abortion supporters refer to this as medication abortion, I suppose, because it's a pill, so it, it looks like a medication. But um, Ryan and I decided to use, and I, I've always used, I believe, in my own writing, chemical abortion because it's not a medication, right? It's not actually medication implies or comes from the word medicine, which is to heal or treat or to you know find some kind of underlying disease and attempt to make it better. That's what medicine does. And it's not actually medical treatment or healthcare to target a living human being and kill it. That's the only purpose of the abortion pill. And so um, chemical abortion is an abortion induced by chemical means. It's not medication. 
do other people in the pro-life movement use the term chemical abortion or they also use medication abortion? And do you, are you advocating, are you trying to change the, 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 the terminology used? Is that one of the, one of the arguments of the book that, I mean, you, you, you talk, you, you basically use the term chemical abortion throughout. And I just wonder, is that something that you're, that you're trying to get your fellow members of the pro-life movement to, to adopt or, or is that, or do they already do that? Yeah, I would, I think most do as far as I can remember, as far as I've seen, I think chemical abortion is by and large the most common term, but for readers in particular, I think a lot of times um, just your kind of average pro-lifer might not think about the nuances or, um, you know, realize the differences in terminology there. So I would hope it would help readers to understand why we use that term and, and to consider using it themselves. One, one thing that was interesting to me about the chemical abortion aspect is that the woman, you quote a woman who, who administers the chemicals to herself, and she she refers to herself as, I still hadn't miscarried, even though it's not, it's that term miscarried, it's not a miscarriage at all. It's, 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 even though she's, I'd like to read what she says, and because it's very moving, and, and also, it also makes clear that these chemicals are bringing abortion into the workplace, because she, 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 she oh, I'll read it first, and she says, Several days had gone by and I still hadn't miscarried until one evening at work, I started to feel what would be menstrual cycle pains and excused myself to the restroom. I sat down on the toilet and blood began pouring out of my body. I stood up and gazed at the small sack that had exited my womb. Everything felt very surreal at that moment as if I were in a dream. When I fully realized my baby was lying on the bottom of the commode, I began to cry and as I read that, I thought of workplaces around the country, and I, I thought, gosh, you know, you what, you go in, and there's a, a woman who's <laughs> expelling a fetus into the toilet next to you. It's just a nightmare scenario. It's just incredible. Could you, yeah. could you, could you talk about the term? Uh, 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 I mean, what, what, what is happening? Where, we, where are we on medication abortions? Because right now, uh, they're, they're I visited a website called Hey Jane, and they're they're available only in certain states. But are, is what is, what is the Biden administration and FDA doing on that? They're making it, trying to make it as accessible as possible. And how are states going to pro life states going to deal with that? Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of threads to unpack here. Um, one is I do want to pull out what you mentioned about the use of the word miscarry, um, and I think it's interesting even in that context. You know, the story you mentioned is a, a woman who later came to regret her abortion, shared this experience and how traumatizing it was. Um, but even so, I think there's this kind of cultural idea that somehow abortion and miscarriage should be conflated or are interchangeable. There's an op-ed in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago where the two authors asked, why do we speak about abortion and miscarriage differently? Uh, making the argument that you know these are basically the same thing and we shouldn't treat them as, as being different when, of course, both are a loss of human life and it's the pro-abortion side that won't acknowledge that. But one is not intentional, right? A miscarriage is a, a sudden, spontaneous loss of an unborn child, and an abortion is an intentional act. Um, and so I think that that muddying of the waters is something that people on the pro-abortion side indulge in because they think it helps to sort of, you know, it, it pushes this idea that, you know, sometimes pregnancies just don't work out. And whether it's a kind of spontaneous miscarriage or having an abortion, it's all just kind of the same thing. Sometimes we just are pregnant and aren't anymore, and that's okay. And I think this is a really, it's a horrible thing, and it's unfair in particular to people who've suffered a miscarriage, because that is not at all the same thing as an abortion. Um, but to your second point, yeah, the, I think the chemical abortion landscape is very important right now, because, um, you know, something like 20, 25 states have pretty significant regulations on abortion at this point. And um, so you, we've already seen Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers 
pivot to this um, chemical abortion model where you can order them online, you can get a prescription for a chemical abortion and try to receive it by the mail. And during the COVID pandemic, um, abortion supporters pushed for a change to FDA regulations, allowing women to obtain a chemical abortion pill via the mail without ever seeing a doctor in person. Um, and what we, we note in the book too, that this raises a lot of safety concerns for women. Yes. Um, which I think is really important to pay attention to. And unfortunately, the other side is not really interested in talking about those risks, but it also makes it easier to skirt pro-life laws. So if you live in a pro-life state, it's hard to enforce that law when you have chemical abortion drugs arriving by the mail. Um, so one thing, I, I think it, there's already a federal law making it illegal, I'm pretty sure, to mail abortion pills across state lines. Um, I don't know how that's enforced. I know pro-lifers are, are kind of beginning to lobby to uh, enforce those laws, to you know pass better regulations on this topic. It's obviously a very difficult thing to pinpoint. Um, but the last thing I would note on that on that point is that any pro-life law in question on this topic is always or ought to always target the the doctor who's prescribing the abortion pills. It's mm -hmm. not this is not going to entail barging into women's homes and looking for evidence of having had a miscarriage, looking for evidence of the pills, prosecuting women. That's what abortion supporters would like people to believe. But in fact, the idea would be to enforce the law against the abortionists so that they don't prescribe the drugs in the first place. Yes, I was noticing too that that. In your book, it, and and the and the abortion, the the pro-abortion forces always use the word doctors, but more and more we're seeing this movement to democratize in a way the 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 abortion provider field. So now nurse practitioner there are bills for nurse practitioners to do it, for nurses to do it, for for physician assistants to do it. Is that is what are the implications of that? That that just makes it ever easier to to get one or. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's actually, I've done a bit of research and writing on this um, in the past. And the real reason for this push to, um, you know, expand the category of people who are permitted to perform abortions is that most OBGYNs will not perform abortions. There's actually a pretty significant dearth of abortion providers in the country. Now, I don't know about relative to demand. That's not, I haven't studied that carefully. But I do know that, you know, surveys suggest that fewer than uh, 7% of OBGYNs are willing to perform abortions or do so regularly. And I think that's mm. pretty telling, right? Good doctors don't want to commit acts of lethal violence that are medically unnecessary. Um, but it also suggests that the abortion industry is looking for people who are willing to do this. And so whether that's physician assistants or nurse practitioners, um, there's obviously a training issue here and a safety element. Mm -hmm. um, not that abortion is ever safe, but I think it's less safe if you have untrained people or non-OBGYNs doing it, let's say for the woman that is. Um, but it's really in response to that dearth and, and wanting to be able to increase the number of abortions provided at, at these abortion clinics. But as but as but as as the pro as sorry as the pro-abortion movement captures younger and younger people, will the intake of of medical medical students become more and more pro-abortion because they're making it more and more difficult to opt out? of the requiring it as part of their training and people are saying, I will not as part of my training do this. And so what are the implications of it? We saw that the, at, at, at the University of Michigan recently, the students walked out, this medical student walked out rather than listen to a, a pro-life speaker who wasn't even a, talking about abortion. But the, yeah. what, what, how do you see this? How do you see the mindset of, and, and certainly certainly one of the most, the most effective parts of your book is, is the ex, expose you provide of the pro-abortion and not scientifically based uh, role of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Could you could you discuss them? Because they're so often cited in, in, in news stories about, well, the experts say and so forth. And 
Yeah. So, yeah, on, on the issue of abortion, ACOG is, um, you know, essentially a, a political activism organization. It's a lobbying, a pro-abortion lobbying arm. Um, it's not any kind of medical expert on the issue of abortion. The, the group consistently sidelines actual true medical information on the basis of, you know, wanting to, to push legalized abortion, unlimited abortion. And every single abortion-related case, just to give an example, every single judicial case that's come before the Supreme Court, ACOG has lobbied against any kind of restrictions on abortion, any kind of informed consent, any kind, anything that has to do with abortion, the answer is always fewer restrictions, even if it's aimed at helping women's, you know, protecting women's safety, health and safety, no matter what it is, ACOG is against restrictions or regulations on abortion. So this really is a, a political issue for them. This is not about medicine. Um, so they really should not be trusted as an expert on this. And that we have a lot of the history of that, that shift um, in the book, but to the point of, of pro-life people being able to become OBGYNs and doctors, this is actually a pretty significant, um, maybe crisis is too strong, but it's certainly a brewing problem. And I'm actually working on an article right now about how um, uh, one particular medical board that, that licenses OBGYNs is threatening to remove or you know, at, at the very least review the board certification of any OBGYN who peddles misinformation or disinformation mm -hmm. in the context of abortion. And they, they, of course, don't spell out what this means. They don't explain the process by which this is going to be enforced. Um, but it's really just this kind of vague, intimidating threat where they're yeah. suggesting to OBGYNs, if you share information about abortion that goes against our line, which is unlimited abortion no matter what, so if you divulge pro-life information to your clients, you might be subject to having your board certification revoked, which is a very, very big deal for OBGYNs. So um, there really is this push from these elite medical organizations to eradicate the pro-life point of view among doctors, which of course is not only bad for conscience rights, the freedom of, of doctors, but for patients, many of whom don't want to have an OBGYN who performs abortions. I noticed yesterday that Google was institute was doing a study of pre-buttal of trying to control what people basically would give a heads up to Google ahead of time to say, well, that someone's going to make an argument. We're going to we're going to have a ready to re pre-butt it. In other words, to try to control the na the narrative, as they say. But that's one of the aspects of your book that I think is really fascinating, and it's reflected in the title. It harms everything because you were talking about um, well, we're talking about ACOG that. Again, the media is is just completely on board with whatever they say. They they never they never very rarely. I mean, NPR obviously doesn't interview you or 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 um, any, any pro life doctor at all. It's so the book makes clear that everything is corrupted, everything is touched, and that's it's it's very 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 worrying. And one one aspect of that too is that in terms of the free speech aspect, could you talk about Elizabeth Warren? One, the, the, what pregnancy resource centers are and the scary aspect that she wants to, she was actually arguing that they should not even be allowed. She was wanted, she wrote a letter, she and Warner, I think Warner and Warren, Warren and Warren, War, Mark Warner wrote a letter. But maybe it was just what Mark Warren, Mark, Mark Warner wrote a letter to Google to say, you shouldn't even be having this in your search results. Could you talk a little about a, the pregnancy center and the misinformation and what the pregnancy resource centers do and why why there's such animus against them. Yeah, so there are, um, I think, about 3,500 uh, approximately pregnancy resource centers across the country. They vastly outnumber 
um, certainly Planned Parenthoods, but also just abortion clinics. And the idea of these centers that pro-lifers have been, um, you know, trying to, to form these across the country for decades now in response to Roe v. Wade, um, encouraging, assisting women in unplanned pregnancies to choose life. Um, and that could be any number of things, it, and it varies quite a bit based on the center, but many provide um, free ultrasounds, uh, you know, different types of resources for, you know, once a baby is born, whether that's formula, diapers, baby clothes, a lot of them connect women with job training or, you know, legal assistance if they need it. Some of these are maternity homes where a woman in need whose family or, or partner isn't supporting her might be able to live until the baby's born and, and thereafter. Um, and they really, the idea is, you know, women often choose abortion because they feel like they have no other option, which is, of course, not a free choice at all. And so we as pro-lifers have to say, you know, have to offer something to women who want to choose life and help them do so. Um, and it's a, a very successful mission. And that, of course, is why the pro-abortion movement is so opposed to it, because for every woman who goes to a pregnancy resource center and, you know, decides, hey, maybe I can choose life after all, maybe this will be okay, that's a woman who's not getting an abortion. And that's, you know, a, some money that Planned Parenthood's not going to pocket. And so there's been this very systemic opposition to these centers from abortion supporters, um, where essentially they argue that the, these centers are um, damaging to women, that they try to coerce women into not having an abortion, that they offer, um, you know, fake advertising or fake information, or they, they mislead women. And one example we cite in the book of what's supposedly so misleading, um, NARAL did a study of these pregnancy resource centers and said that um, one example of the lies that are told is that the, the counselors at these centers refer to the fetus as a baby, right? And that's what they describe as a lie. So that kind of tells you <laughs> the perspective here, right? The misinformation is that women are being told there's a human being inside of them and not a clump of cells. Um, and so uh, to your point about Elizabeth Warren, there was actually a, a bill, I think four Democratic senators got mm -hmm. together and co-sponsored a bill a couple months ago essentially targeting pregnancy resource centers and trying to, uh, you know, regulate them out of existence and make it impossible for them to operate. And we've seen this before. A couple of years ago, there was a California law that got mm -hmm. struck down, in fact, because it was trying to force pregnancy resource centers to advertise for the state's uh, free or low cost abortion program. They wanted to have these massive posters in these pro-life centers telling women they could go get an abortion somewhere else, um, which of course is a violation of, of these clinics free speech rights. And it was it was found to be such. But in, in any event, the idea is these centers have to be shut down because they stand in the way of, of unlimited abortion. And I think that if people don't care about the abortion issue, they should they could at least care about the fact that Google is being pressured to hide information. That's the entire point of a search engine is to reveal information. It's just really frightening the idea that that would be an acceptable argument in any in any respect. But one of one of the one phrase you use in the book is abortion dis distortion. And you're right of the of the pro, of the pre Dobbs era. How did we end up in this lopsided situation where Americans who support abortion are permitted to have their views enshrined in law, but pro-life citizens are blocked at every turn when their lawmakers try to protect unborn children? And we've certainly seen that in the in the weeks since Roe that everything is blocked at every level. And and were you surprised by that, or is it, I think that does is has the pro-life movement been caught a little flat-footed by that or is it just that the, the resources that or, or are they or, or are they effectively countering that it's just that no, every, think, every news story you hear is about well it's the this the this has been on hold and so forth and so on yeah I, I think some of what we've seen thus far has just been kind of the the lower courts working out how to apply Dobbs to various cases that were already in the pipeline um so pretty much every state that is now trying to enact or has enacted pro-life laws has been trying to do so for a long time. And 
all of the most recent iterations of pro-life laws were all on hold or blocked or had been struck down because of a legal challenge. And many of those were still pending at the time that Dobbs was decided in, part, in large part because of Dobbs. You know, of course, where the lower courts were waiting to see which way Dobbs would go before they resolved some of these challenges. Um, and so I think most of what we've seen has just been um, kind of the, the outworkings of that, um, trying to apply Dobbs to these cases. In some of these cases, unfortunately, there are a handful of states where the state Supreme Court has had um, what's essentially a, a Roe v. Wade decision for the state constitution. Mm. Um, it's not very many states, but there are at least a few where laws have been struck down on, on those grounds because um, you know either that decision has to be reversed or they have to have a ballot measure or something to reverse it in the state. Uh, but by and large, I think we will, we're entering an era, at least in the next year or so, where we'll be able to see almost every pro-life law um, take effect with no interference from the courts. Oh, really? So you're quite optimistic then? I am. I mean, I'm not necessarily optimistic about uh, every state getting on board with passing great pro-life laws, but I don't think that they're under Dobbs. I don't think there's any way that courts can actually get away with, with striking down pro-life laws. They might not be clear. In, in some cases, I think there've been a few where the courts say that the law was written too vaguely or something like that, but they're all things that can be worked out by the legislature um, and, and put in place effectively. Well, on that point, you write that about the president during her run for the presidency, Kamala Harris wanted to make an end run around state laws that she that she proposed that the Department of Justice spearhead a, a pre-clearance regime for any state laws regulating abortion. Has anything come of that? That's pretty frightening. That that's not even going through Congress. That's going through the Department of Justice. Would that would that work for the pro the pro-abortion movement to just say, well, we're just going to override the state's state states' rights, period. Yeah. Is that even I think practical? It- it, it would have been certainly an overstepping of the executive's constitutional authority, in my opinion. Um, they could have tried it. They did not try it before Roe was overturned. I think at this point, it would be very difficult to get away with. And, and thus far, they have suggested, I think that the statements from the administration um, have fallen far short of doing any such thing. So I, mm-hmm. I think they realize they are not going, going to be able to get away with that. But there is a bill in Congress um, called, strangely enough, the Women's Health Protection Act, mm-hmm. Um, quite a misnomer. And what it would do in part, it it would create a federal right to abortion, you know, codify Roe v. Wade, essentially. And then it would also strike down any state law that is considered in violation of that right. So it would do basically what what Harris said she wanted to do through the DOJ. It would do it via federal law, or it would empower the DOJ to do that. Um, It hasn't passed. The Senate has voted on it three or four times. um, And it it has not even gotten majority support. So I, I don't think Certainly, it's not going to pass this Congress, but it is something that is on Democrats' radar. So it's an extreme, very extreme bill, and I think it should be deeply unpopular. Hmm. Well, getting back to the, the 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 term abortion distortion, one of the most effective things in the book, there's a lot that's effective, in the book, but what one of the you make the point that with abortion centers, that the abortion distortion comes into play that they're they're treated differently from every single other medical, comp- comparable medical procedure, and you write, in, one, in two of the most recent cases, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt and June Medical Services versus Russo, ACOG argued against admitting privileges requirements for abortion clinics, even though those requirements apply to all other forms of ambulatory surgical centers, and even though ACOG's own guidance suggests that direct patient handoff reduces medical errors. And how do they, how do they explain how that they're in favor of women's health and yet they're saying, well, you know, these 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 will not have the same high standards of everything else that would be done to a woman or a man. Yeah, it's very interesting how they get away with it. And essentially what they do is just claim that any 
policy that has anything to do with regulating abortion, regulating abortionists, uh, you know, imposing health and safety regulations on abortion clinics as this law would have done, or those two laws rather would have done. Um, they just call all of those abortion restrictions, which they are not, right? That law did not place any restrictions on when a woman can get an abortion. And then they say that abortion restrictions are bad for women's health. And then they, you know, usually don't give evidence or they pull out kind of a random cherry picked study here or there. And they say that this is bad for women's health. And therefore, if you support women's health, you have to be against this law. So it's a very neat little two-step that falls apart if you do any investigating at all. Uh, but they very successfully made women's health synonymous with unlimited abortion. And that's really, that's part of what we were hoping to do in the book is give pro-lifers the resources to both understand and then articulate to others why that's actually not true. Right? It's not, first of all, abortion is not healthcare at all. But it's also not good for women's health. Um, and it's not, you know, unlimited abortion is not actually a, a women's health care issue. Hmm. I'd like to ask you in terms of because because the listenership of of the New Books Network is not necessarily familiar with the, the arguments you make. Could you tell us what would a sound and truly fair abortion law forbid and permit? I know that's a huge, a huge question, but could you explain why some procedures causing fetal death can sometimes be permissible and should not be legally prohibited. I mean, what, what are the, because ex- so often they'll, they'll, the left will throw, well, the, we want this, except you're, you don't, this is a, there, there are no exceptions. You're just, you're just absolutist, but you don't, there are some that are morally permissible, right? Yeah. So I think the best way to understand this is to, um, to understand the difference between a direct abortion and an indirect abortion. Um, so a direct elective abortion is a procedure where, you know, the mother's health is totally fine. And um, the abortionist goes in, whether, you know, with a chemical abortion or a surgical abortion, goes in and by some means directly kills the unborn child and removes it from the mother. Uh, That is never medically necessary. There's no situation, there's no maternal health situation, there's no fetal health situation that requires directly killing an unborn child. Now, there are some very rare uh, maternal health complications such as an ectopic pregnancy or placenta mm-hmm. previa or different types of things that might arise, complications during pregnancy that might arise, that might require some kind of actual healthcare treatment to save the mother's life that could have the indirect effect of the child dying. So one example would be ectopic pregnancy. This is when the embryo implants in outside the uterus, usually in the fallopian tube, and there's no room for the child to grow or develop there. So the the baby is going to die no matter what, there's no room. And as that pregnancy progresses, um, the woman's health is going to be threatened and and might be at risk. And so in that case, it's always morally permissible and under every pro-life law is legally permissible to treat the woman for that ectopic pregnancy, even though that treatment will result in a baby dying because it can't develop where it is. That is always acceptable. And we've seen a lot of falsehoods from the pro-abortion side since Dobbs claiming that this is no longer permitted. It was always permitted, even you know before Dobbs and always under pro-life laws, and it will always be permitted going forward because it's not an abortion. Um, and then as to other, other types of complications that might arise, there's really good, good research out there on this by pro-life uh, OBGYN organizations, but any kind of complication that arises in pregnancy it's always safer to deliver the baby and then treat the mother. There's no situation where directly killing the baby is safer for the mother than an early delivery. And if, mm. you know, sometimes there might be a complication where, um, you know, the baby's too young to survive after delivery, but, you know, delivering the baby and doing your best, medically speaking, to help that child survive while treating the mother is also perfectly morally acceptable. Of course, it's 
sad if you lose that baby. It's not an ideal situation, but there are two lives at stake. And so as long as the doctor is always trying to save both lives and treat both mother and child as best as, as medically possible, uh, that's always going to be permissible under pro-life laws or ought to be. And it's always morally permissible, right? The idea is there are two lives here, both of which have uh, you know dignity and worth and must be taken care of. Hmm. Well, we're approaching the end of the interview, and I'd, I'd like to ask some per, on a personal level before we before we end, could you tell us how old you were when you first became aware of abortion as an issue at all? Because you're you're a very young woman and you grew up, unlike many of your cohorts in the pro-life movement who've been doing this for decades, that you grew up in this era. Can you tell us when you became aware of it? Where 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 were you and where did you hear the news that Dobbs had had been decided in your favor? Yeah, well, I actually don't remember um, when I first found out about abortion, but I do know I've, I've certainly always been pro-life. I was raised by very pro-life parents um, in a Catholic household, and my dad actually um, was working in the Senate when I was a, a little girl in the early, well, the mid-90s. Um, he was working on helping his his boss in the Senate uh, sponsor and, and help pass the partial birth abortion ban, um, which did not take effect for about another decade. But he was very much in the trenches on that. So I, I've always been pro-life and raised by very pro-life parents. Um, and I've always been against abortion. And as long as I can remember, I've had a very strong conviction that uh, I'm called to do something about it. And the, the more I've been involved, and we kind of allude to this in the book, the more I feel like everybody has a a role to play. And it might not be writing and speaking about this the way I do. Of course, most people are not called to that. But um, I think every pro-lifer has a responsibility to do something, even if it's very small, you know, no matter where you are, this is uh, really a fight that, that you belong in. Um, as to where I was, I was at, at home. Um, my husband and I were working from home. It was a Friday morning. And I remember I was thinking that the decision would come out the subsequent week. And there was a lot of buzz that maybe it was going to be that day. And I, I didn't really, you know, of course, no one knows for sure. But I, I said I wanted to be, you know, sitting with my husband when we found out. And um, we did. It was just incredible. It was an incredible moment. Hmm. What 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 do you see yourself doing in the next two or three years personally, continuing as a as a journalist or. Or do you feel that 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 maybe you become an academic or is it is it I think they're incredibly effective. Is, it, is there anyone comparable to you? I don't know, in terms of the journalistic tirelessness of your reporting. It's just a, it's just amazing. It must be exhausting to 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 counter every single lie that comes down or, or misrepresentation. I know that your work on ectopic pregnancies alone was pretty impressive. And thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. There are certainly a lot of um, very, very hardworking pro-lifers. I've had the the blessing of being um, in, in a position to write about this a lot. And my uh, employers at National Review have been very, you know, given me a lot of freedom and a lot of support to cover this issue. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, going forward, my, my hope and the book with Ryan was sort of a, a foray into doing more long form writing, more, um, you know, research that, that takes a bit more time. Um, and I'd like to do more of that. I, I certainly always hope to be writing. I'll be writing for National Review, I'm sure, um, far into the future. But I would like my work to be a little bit more scholarly, a little bit more researched and, um, you know, be able to write the occasional op-ed now and then when it's, it's necessary, but to really dig into the issue, because I've found um, I think the set of things that I, I really am passionate about that I think our, our culture, our society needs to hear more about and know more about. So I'm hoping to be able to, to continue contributing like that um, going forward. Well, I'd like to mention, too, that you and Ryan have recently launched a superb co podcast called Life After Dobbs, which the title is very helpful because 
it, it says this is a new era and you make the point in the book that now the real work begins and it's and the the lineup of of speakers you have is very very impressive and i would really strongly recommend that that pro that people who are pro-abortion listen to some of the listen to those arguments just to strengthen their own argument to listen to what carter sneed and and people like that say because it's really it's, it's very it's imperative to that, so that everyone can be civil i think the book is very civil that you don't you don't call anyone a murderer you don't you just make this are the facts this is what happens this is the legal landscape and this is where we are it's very very impressive um and with that i will just say or did you have anything more to say Zan, that, that you wanted oh, to no. okay well with that i will just thank the scholar the the journalist we've been talking today although i regard her as a scholar too because it's it's just such a well-sourced book Alexandra's dis, Alexandra DeSanctis, co-author with Ryan T. Anderson of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Zan. Thank you, Alexandra, I should say. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.